singularity. Hello everyone and welcome to another edition of Singularity One-on-One. Singularity One-on-One is a podcast feature of Singularity Weblog where you can go and listen to it or download it in full. As you may already know, my name is Socrates and as always, I am the man with the questions. Today, for the second time, my guest on the show would be George Dvorsky. George Dvorsky is perhaps one of the most notable and well-known Canadian transhumanists bioethicist and animal rights activist. So without further ado, hi George and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me back, Nicola. Fantastic. I'm incredibly happy to have you back on the show, George, because the first time not only did I learn a lot, but I actually had a lot of fun while doing it. And that's why we ended up having the longest interview on Singularity podcast, one hour and 14 minutes, which I still believe was full of good content. Yeah, I remember having a lot of fun doing that myself, and I think because we kept it largely conversational, and uh, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun doing it. So I'm glad to be back, and let's hope we can you know keep the uh, the same energy going and the same uh, level of uh, high level conversation going. Let's hope so, and and maybe even improve on it. So um, I would try to uh, make this interview complementary to the first one, and thus I would avoid uh, repeating or going over some of the topics we touched on the first time. Uh, and so let me start by, by this kind of a very personal question that goes to the core perhaps of what you have been doing and what you have been all about for the last perhaps decade. And that goes uh, directly to your animal rights uh, activism and the fact that uh, during our last interview you admitted that you are a vegetarian, very long-standing vegetarian, uh, for a number of what you called ethical, environmental, and health reasons. Now, I know that you had a huge struggle um, inside of you, and eventually you ended up embracing uh, the paleo diet very recently. And I'm one of the people who supports you on that entirely. But precisely because of who you are and who you have been, I want to find out more about that. So can you share how this whole thing unfolded? Absolutely. And you're right. It was not an easy decision and it continues to be something that I struggle with, uh, uh, not only as somebody who still engages in animal rights uh, activism and looking out for the welfare of animals, but uh, as someone who um, at the same time is concerned about the whole transhumanist aspect here and concerned about wellness and health and some of the, even the larger issues that you mentioned, such as the environmental impact uh, and uh, and so on. So just to kind of peel back, uh, perhaps, and it was interesting because it was in and around the time we did our last interview that I was going through this this transitionary phase. And what I started, I, I was te- a vegetarian for approximately 10 years or so, primarily out of ethical reasons, but also, you know, environmental uh, as well. And uh, one of the things that I started to become very cognizant of uh, was uh, I did not feel that the vegetarian diet, as, as I was going about it, was, was the best diet for me. And I became increasingly interested in health and wellness and even optimizing, uh, optimizing my diet and wondering what is the best way to eat as a human being. And again, this definitely ties into the whole transhumanist side of things is my, my concern is not necessarily, well, my concern clearly when it comes to transhumanism is, you know, 10 years, 20 years, 75 years down the line in terms of some of the more disruptive and amazing technologies that await us. But similarly, I'm also a believer in the radical present and realizing that there's some extraordinary things at our disposal today that, that can enable us to 
either exceed uh, or enhance or augment human capacities, and of course wellness and health, which are tantamount to the uh, the transhumanist vision, particularly life extension, as I'm sure uh, you would you would agree to. So I started to become involved in. Um, uh, at least the uh, the exercise and fitness component through uh, the strength and conditioning work that I do at uh, at CrossFit. And that's really one thing we can we can talk about. But um, once you start to do that sort of work and you start to push your body to certain limits, uh, you start you start to see how your diet is absolutely tied in and in and around that. And my performance at the gym was seriously lacking. And I kind of I was making progress, but then I hit a wall. And I, some of my peers and some of the friends that I was working out with, I could see they were continuing to make progress, and I just seemed stuck. Um, I did not like my body composition. I did not like, uh, again, uh, even how I was feeling both uh, during and after workouts. And I felt that something, something needed to change. And I was very aware at the time that there was this thing called the paleo diet, and I can get into the details in just a sec as to what that is. Um, at the time, I tried to do zone, which is a very strict uh, proportioning of diet, particularly as far as the proteins and the fats and the um, the carbohydrates are concerned, and that was actually very revealing for me. I do recommend actually people who have problem with portion control to certainly give the zone diet a shot. So what I did, I said, okay, I have to make a change here. I'm not feeling, you know, that this is working for me anymore. Let's give this paleo diet a shot. And again, I'm all big on the whole quantify itself thing and, and experimentation. And I meant even vegetarianism. I will add was an experiment, and it ended up lasting ten years. Mm-hmm. So I, I basically said, okay, let's try paleo for about thirty days. Okay, so what is paleo? Paleo is is it an approach to eating that is also referred to as ancestral, or even an evolutionary approach to eating. It's viewed through the lens of biology, which says that really nothing can be understood except through uh, the the framework set up by Darwinian processes. And the, basically, the idea is that. Our bodies and minds, arguably, have they evolved over the course of tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years, to eat a certain way, namely animal protein and all natural foods such as vegetables and fruits and nuts and pretty much nothing else because there really wouldn't have been much uh, prior to the Neolithic era, era when after which agriculture emerged and we have the advent of such things as, as, as grains and, and rice and, of course, today, highly manufactured and processed foods, which are undeniably uh, the cause of many uh, current diseases and ailments and problems. So uh, it's really simply put, it's basically just an approach to uh, whole foods and to natural foods. And uh, uh, I gave it a shot. And, uh, you know, things you're eliminating from your diet are pretty extreme by, I guess, by cultural standards. So you're not eating any bread, you're not eating any pasta, no bagels, no rice, uh, again, nothing with uh, you know, any chemicals or added ingredients. So the, the meals are very straightforward in that sense. Uh, and because I'm largely unimaginative in the kitchen, I've remained that way. But I've seen some people on, on PLE who have extraordinary uh, diversity of foods that they, they're still able to, to prepare. So that's, that's, that's all my own personal failing, not necessarily failing of the diet itself. And I was blown away because, again, doing quantified self and measuring my performances and measuring my body composition. And after 30 days, I was astounded as to the gains that I was making because, again, I had hit a wall and I was stuck for months. So my training didn't change, just my dieting, my dieting had changed. And I started to feel much better, uh, even a better sense of wellness and clarity. And uh, for me, really, as a result, there was, there was no turning back. And uh, like I said, I've made this now an, an indelible part of uh, this kind of uh, primal transhumanist approach that I have. So combined with the, with the, uh, the strength and conditioning and eating this kind of primal diet, I feel that I'm very, very close now 
uh, to being as healthy as I possibly can, given the realities of uh, the limitations today that we have in our medical sciences. And I do look at this act, you know, very, uh, very explicitly as a life extension strategy as well. It's not just living health healthily in the present. I think that strength and this kind of wellness uh, will bode well for when I do get older, when I enter into my elderly years. In fact, studies are showing that if you enter into your elderly years uh, with having done a lot of resistance training and you're, and you're quite strong, you could add as much as a decade at the very least to your life. And that they're recommending now that even elderly people continue to do resistance training in those years. So we have to change our model and change the paradigm within which uh, the elderly people are training. Right now we do things like we throw them in swimming pools and make them move their arms around. That's just not adequate. They can continue to push the limits in terms of strength and kind of push the envelope forward in terms of their longevity. And this, of course, is all part, you know, part of other strategies that you can, you can employ. Uh, another thing that I've recently done is uh, double dosing my uh, omega-3 fatty acids. So I take 6,000 milligrams per day, which is basically six, uh, six pills. And uh, because studies are showing that it staves off neurodegeneration even as early as uh, your 40s. It reduces your chance of cardiovascular disease, and it'll stave off the effects of rheumatoid arthritis. This is all very simple stuff, fish oil, or just eat, just eat lots of salmon. And it's not high-tech, you know, it's not uh, bleeding-edge stuff, but it's common-sense stuff. And uh, that's why, you know, me and many other uh, uh, transhumanists are promoting this idea now that this is the best you can do today, given, given the constraints. Let now, me what... just stop you here, if I Absolutely. might, for one second. Now, uh, and we'll continue that, that topic because you have to say a, a lot about it and it's all very interesting. But let me just uh, stop you here uh, with the input that I got from a reader of Singular Singularity Weblog. When uh, we were discussing uh, your transition from being a vegetarian to, being, uh, uh, to abiding by the paleo diet. And basically what she said was uh, something like bringing in the ethical dimension. Yeah, George Tvorsky uh, went to, uh, to be began to eat animals so that he can improve his performance in the gym, mm -hmm. basically. Uh, in, in other words, uh, she was raising the point, well, maybe that can be true, but ethically speaking, nothing has changed. Those animals that are being consumed are still suffering and and so that's a very in a way she was raising the point that it's perhaps a very selfish way of making a decision right uh, and, and kind of goes directly at the core uh, of, of of what animal rights are for sure a couple of things i'll say about that um one i'm not pretending at this point to be the most the most ethically perfect person and uh you know i as, try as i might and i've, I've been there i there was a time in my life uh, when, you know, particularly when I first came into contact with uh, Eastern philosophies and Buddhism, that I, I did go about my life in such a way that I tried to mete out as little suffering as possible to the universe, if you will. Mm -hmm. And it's something that still obviously is a concern of mine, but no longer do I let it, I guess, override my life and dominate my life. I, I have to, I, I guess, be balanced in the sense and be fair to myself in the, in the sense as to how I need to live and how I, how I want to live as well. So there, undeniably, I mean, we're all selfish and we all have a little bit of a, a hypocritical aspect to us. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to pretend I'm something that I'm not. That's all. Um, so that's, that's how we'll start to answer that question. Mm -hmm. The second thing I will say though is, um, that's kind of a, a very trite way of, you know, you know, saying that I'm just trying to get gains at the gym and, and that's, for me, that's, it's an indicator of my overall health and strength. 
And like I said, that's part of my life extension strategy. So if I'm doing well at the gym, that means I'm doing well health, you know, in terms of my health and wellness and um, continuing to build muscle mass. I mean, these aren't, these aren't petty things. To be able to, like I said, to be able to enter into your elder, elder, elderly years with, with uh, as much muscle mass as you could muster, including also very, uh, a very high degree of bone density because resistance training will also give you bone density uh, much, bit, much more than you had not, which will stave off obviously the effects of osteoporosis, which is a particular issue for women. So women also need to be doing uh, uh, resistance training. Mm-hmm. So, um, so in other words, doing well at the gym is simply, again, symptomatic or emblematic of overall health and wellness. And there's a third element I'll answer to, 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 that I'll say to this question, mm-hmm. and that is you, there's, there's not all meat eaters and not all carnivores are the same, and not all of them go about meat, eat, meat eating in the same sort of a way. I do believe that even though it might be imperfect from the perspective of a vegetarian or a vegan or even a, yeah. from a she Buddhist was, she perspective. She was vegetarian, that yeah. reader that I talked yeah. I actually think I know who you're referring to, by the way, because I received a very, almost an identical email from this person, but that's, mm-hmm. that's fair. Um, the... Um, the, the, the desire to be the conscious carnivore, I think, is, is fair. And I think you certainly have this, the vast majority of meat eaters are very careless and, um, or, or even not even thoughtful in terms of where their meat comes from and the conditions with which the, uh, their animal products are coming from. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's not something that, uh, that I, I, I think that um, I'm guilty of. I strive to be that conscious carnivore. So what that means is, Going to farmers markets, going to you know the organic uh, uh, mm-hmm. food uh, food stores such as Organic uh, Garage, which we have here, or uh, Whole Foods, for example, and you know basically eating, let's say, beef from uh, grass-fed cattle, uh, mm-hmm. free-range chickens, also also uh, the eggs from free uh, free-range chickens, uh, which are so I believe what I'm I'm eating uh, meat that came from an animal that actually had a decent life, or at least a reasonably decent life, a life that was actually worth living. Not like these lives that are, you know, uh, being, you know, uh, that are occurring in factory farms for all, for all of these animals. That's unbelievably deplorable, and that's definitely something that has to come to an, to an end. And a remarkable thing about the paleo community is you'll find that the vast majority of them are on board this certain idea. They're all about sustainable farming, about healthy meats, hormone-free meats, uh, grass-fed, uh, free-range uh, foods, and uh, if, if there's any group out there right now that's kind of leading the, the charge to uh, eliminate or not, if not reduce uh, the amount of factory farming that goes on, it's the paleo people. And uh, they are this. I think they may, as this kind of this idea starts to propagate, it may be responsible. I think for a lot of different things, including um, again more ethical standards at farms, the rise of more individual farms. So we're going back to that sort of a trend. And uh, and again, what is does what's not only is this ethical. It's also vastly improving the quality of the meats as well. So a grass-fed meat, meat is astoundingly better for you than grain-fed mm-hmm. meat. The, uh, when you're eating grain-fed um, meat, again, cows aren't, they don't, they're not meant to eat grain. They're, they're meant to eat grass. So what problems that that uh, results is, is a preponderance of omega-6s in your, in your body. So that throws your omega-3s and omega-6s out, way out of whack. It, uh, it prevents your body from um, being able to absorb uh, nutrients and minerals to the degree that it, sh- that it would ha- had you been eating grass-fed. And also there's issues with water retention. So that's just one example of, of many. So that, that's, that's how, I, uh, how I look at it. Again, nothing uh, – I'm not bl- just blindly going into that. I'm just going to start to eat meat because I want to you know, have a great deadlift. That's that's a gross oversimplification and not, and not even uh, remotely fair. Like anything I do in life – I weigh always the pros and cons. I weigh my own particular particular needs and interests, and my own particular uh, agenda, even if you will, to promote ideas of human wellness. Mm-hmm. 
and well-being and uh, go about it, I think, in the most responsible and ethical way possible. And that's why I, I supported you in that decision, because I know you to be a very thorough person and a very thorough researcher before you you make a major decision like that, because I know how strongly committed you were before to that. And that's why first I thought, well, George must have very good reasons for doing what he did. And second of all, I, I respected your decision, but third of all, it really started making me think about whether I should follow your example or not, because I have to say I spent 10 weeks in California this summer, and uh, the Many people, not only such as, you know, Max Moore and Natasha Vitamore, who have been guests here previously on the show and have both uh, talked about their paleo diets, uh, but many other people in California are actually embracing uh, that, that diet. Uh, Tim Ferriss, for example, who is not explicitly embracing the paleo diet, his recommendations are very close to it. Yes, very they are. close to it. Yeah. Uh, with some exceptions, such as beans and legumes and, and so on. Um, my, my thing was that, I mean, I haven't made up my mind completely, but let me grab the example of the omega-3 fatty acids. You know, I, I used to take those for years with my other supplements that I take here, multivitamins and so on, antioxidants, etc. And probably about a year ago, I developed some kind of, a, of an intolerance or something, because every time I'd take those uh, or either a multivitamin which contained uh, omega-3 fatty acids or just omega-3 fatty acids separately as they're sold by, say, New Chapter or the other ones, I'd get a headache, like a oh, killer, wow. killer headache. Wow. And okay. as soon as I stopped taking these, headache was gone. And, and, and I tested this on several times, you know, as soon as I take it, because, you know, you take usually three per day or something like that, one, in, one with every meal. And, and you know, usually... Mid to late afternoon, I started having the headaches, and the days that I excluded those, no headaches. So, uh, and I still haven't found an explanation for that. Uh, mm. But it's, and I know the importance of those fatty acids. I know how crucial and vital they are for health and overall, uh, for everything in your body. And and still, you know, the headaches are just keeping me right. away. From what I would re what I would recommend then, if you can't take supplements directly, just make sure you get a lot of salmon in your diet, uh, particularly or exclusively from Pacific salmon, because there's no such thing as Atlantic salmon. Yeah. Uh, that's all that's all farm fed, and it's yeah. kind of that's a very garbagey kind of food. Yeah. Um, and if you can, uh, and this can be an issue of affordability, uh, eat the grass fed. Uh, the grass-fed beef because it's going to not have uh, it's not going to throw your omega-6 ratio off. So those are things that you could do um, without having to resort to supplementation. Yeah, those are things that I do have in mind. But both the, the Pacific and the grass-fed are kind of <laughs> I know high-budget items. Yeah. And, and as someone who is like full-time blogging without really any serious income, that's a little. And you bring up a fair point, and it's an issue for me as well, is the affordability of all this. It's not cheap to eat yeah. healthily. And it's one of the most frustrating things you discover when you really focus on being a, if, uh, you know, foodie and eating healthily. It's like, man, these grocery bills are, are through the roof. Yeah. And uh, that's part of the problem. You know, it's, it's a part of the whole fast food uh, culture that we live in. And it's, it's, why, it's what's caused the whole uh, um, you know, uh, uh, factory farming uh, problem as it is. So uh, I'm not sure what to even suggest by... Uh, in, in terms of maybe just simply prioritizing where you spend your money and realizing, well, maybe uh, health health is so important to you, you will in fact find the ways to budget for for those types of foods. So I have two two more questions uh, on that sort of line of of, of conversation. So the first one is, um, 
What about the environmental dimensions? I mean, the idea goes that, you know, if you are a vegan, you're consuming somewhere between four or eight times less of the resources associated with your food production, depending on what references you read. Um, and therefore, you're putting less stress on the planet and the environment in general. What about those? Uh, again, I think vegans shouldn't kid themselves about uh, the environmental impact of uh, non-meat-based diets. I think the, the jury is still out on, uh, on that. Um, I mean, every, every diet is going to cause a certain degree of suffering uh, and a certain degree of degradation to the environment. It's, uh, I think it's a, it's a matter of degrees, don't get me wrong. I think that uh, factory farming for meat is definitely the major culprit and is definitely causing more of a problem than, let's say, non-meat-based agriculture. But uh, we're still talking about two evils, if you will. There's no perfect way around it. You know, our, our presence here on this planet as, as human beings is going to cause stress to the planet, uh, which is, unless, of course, which gets to the second part of the answer, uh, again, I want to stress the fact that we are talking about new models of agriculture and the whole issue of sustainable farming. Mm -hmm. So basically moving to smaller venues and uh, working within systems where there, there's a kind of ecological soundness to them. And I saw one remarkable model where uh, it was a small-scale farm. And the first stage was basically, well, actually, they asked the farmer, you know, what are you actually a, f a farmer of? Because he had a bunch of different things on his farm. He says, well, he says, actually, primarily speaking, I'm a grass farmer. And the, the, the journalist, like, couldn't really quite understand it until they got in there and actually saw what, what, what he was actually talking about. And what he did is he set aside a certain part of uh, the pasture there to grow grass to make sure that it was, uh, that it was vibrant and, uh, and lush. And only until uh, it reached a certain stage that he let the cows go in there, and uh, the cows, of course, did their thing, and they, they ate all the grass. So that's which is obviously a good good part of that. But at the same at the same time, they they dropped their dung onto the fields, and once they were kind of done there, he moved them out to a different area, and he let the dung and uh, uh, and all the kind of the waste products that were left there just kind of fester. And after a few days, what ends up happening is you get maggots and grubs and all these different bugs, at which point he let the chickens in there. And they go to town. Like, they also, the timing is crucial because if you wait too long, then you're going to have flies and all these other mm -hmm. insects around there. Mm -hmm. So then, then you have the chickens go in there, and uh, they, uh, you know, they go to town on all the grubs and the worms and all the things that are, what, that are actually a natural part of their diet. That's what a chicken should be eating. Mm -hmm. And uh, similarly, also it's going to produce a chicken that tastes fantastic and produce eggs that taste fantastic and actually have color to the yolk and have all the beneficial qualities yeah. that you would want. The dark yolks, yeah. Yeah. And, um, and then, sim then, then similarly, then once that, of course, now the, the, uh, the, um, the chickens, of course, are also uh, adding their waste products to that particular area, but that in turn is going to add the sulfur and other attributes that's now going to grow the grass again. And now you see we have this cycle, and this is, this is the model that we need to move to. And you've got meat being produced here, and uh, you know, arguably you can say that even the this, this same farm can also similarly produce uh, vegetables and fruits depending on, on the model and, and how this particular farmer wants to do it. Uh, the, 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 while it sounds great on paper and certainly we're moving more towards this, this sort of a model and I would like to support it, the, the only issue about it is what will this do to food prices down the line? And the experts that I'm hearing are saying, well, it's going gonna, it's gonna to result in higher food prices. And uh, that's why I think that there's going to have to be a sea change, I think, in society that, that uh, right now I think we're getting used to the fact that food is so, uh, so cheap, uh, but we're paying some awful prices 
uh, for that cheapness, both in terms of our health and what the impact is on our environment. And if we want to have both of those things, uh, you know, optimal, then we're going to have to pay a little bit more for uh, for that, and maybe less on things like our iPhones and iPads and all the uh, materialistic luxuries that we're similarly uh, accustomed to and have as equally prioritized in our lives. Mm-hmm. And and but the question then is, is it sustainable to expect that seven or even soon eight and nine billion people? can be fed sustainably uh, with that kind of a free-range organic kind of farming techniques? I don't know the answer to that question. I think it's an experiment that's worth embarking upon. And uh, I think there's enough land I think there's an, an, uh, to, to be able to, to do that. And I think that uh, hopefully, I think it might be just a matter of initiative, of ensuring that there's going to be an equitable, equitable distribution of these sorts of uh, foodstuffs. And uh, that, you know, we, like I said, I think it's an experiment worth embarking upon to see if we can do it. I don't think we actually have much of a choice. Mm -hmm. Uh, And secondly, what I'll say is there also needs to be some um, technological intervention here. And I do hold great faith, for example, in the possibility of uh, uh, artificial meat or lab-grown meat, uh, where we are talking about actual meat protein uh, in a proper sense, but that uh, we we develop the requisite technologies, not just to develop it such that it's tasty, that it has the same texture, and of course, very importantly, it has all the beneficial qualities from a health perspective that we want out of that meat, mm-hmm. but that we can also mass produce it. Because as I understand it, we kind of can sort of do it in labs and petri dishes and maybe kind of make it taste a little bit good, but what we cannot do is get, get this production line, this kind of factory uh, scale production that would, you know, so-called feed the world. So these are some struggles. That's why they're, I don't believe anything you hear when you see like, oh, you know, next year we'll have, you know, artificial meat and so on. No, we are still, I think, a few, a few uh, yeah. at least a decade, if not decades away from that. But I think that uh, that will go a long way to addressing some of the concerns that you have and some of the concerns that we will globally have as a, as a population that's now teeming into the, uh, uh, the upper billions. Uh, let me move on here. I mean, I want to note just one point that before that, perhaps, that I was talking to some people working in that field this summer, and they were saying that currently most of the techniques actually involve using a certain kind of a calf hormone, which is extracted only after you kill baby calves or something like that. Mm-hmm. So those petri dishes meats are impossible at the moment without that element. So they're really not suffering free at the moment at all okay but well or at least that's what i was told um but uh let me bring in your other dimension here in terms of the physical uh activities that you're involved with with cross training and so on um and and so let's let's stop here for for the beginning what do you do specifically you mean in terms of strength and conditioning? Yes. Okay, so the program that I'm that I'm in is referred to as uh, CrossFit. And uh, CrossFit was a strength and conditioning program that was, I think, is about 15, 20 years old now. And the idea behind it is it's 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 a it's a really a move away from move away from the traditional models that we have in the gym where you know you go to your, your global gym, your family gym, you go in the treadmill for about five to ten minutes. Um, you do some stretching perhaps, then you go to the back and you do isolation movements. So today I'm going to work on my, my biceps and then tomorrow I'm going to work on my legs and, and so on. Maybe take, take a, a rest day in between all this. Um, that's starting to be, that, I think that that's, that's more of bodybuilding culture. That was the split system, yeah. I yeah. used to do that when I was 18 and 19. So you can blame Arnold Schwarzenegger and company on on the chain. I'm sorry, on, on right. One, that's yeah. it exactly. Yeah. And uh, what what we have found is that it doesn't really work in terms of uh, uh, overall fitness. 
And uh, this uh, this fellow named uh, Greg Glassman, he, uh, he as the story goes, uh, started to develop these uh, movements and workouts that that are highly varied. So the, every day you're doing something different, and they're also what are referred to as compound movements. So you're not working, let's say, on your arms only. These movements are all very uh, highly specialized in the sense that they are you're working almost your whole body. And I'll give you one example is the thruster. So the thruster is a move where you have, and again, there's a lot of weightlifting, and specifically Olympic, Olympic weightlifting in CrossFit. You take the bar at your rack position here. Typically for guys, if you go at 90, anywhere from 95 pounds through to 135 pounds, and you take it from a standing position, you go to a full squat. There's a lot of squatting in CrossFit, so if you don't like squatting, you're probably not going to like CrossFit, but you're going to have to get over it. Um, and then from a full squat, you have to then thrust yourself up and lift the bar overhead and then come back down again to a full squat. That is an incredibly demanding movement. It's, uh, you're using your whole posterior chain, and uh, it's, it's uh, uh, cardiovascularly demanding. And, of course, you need strength both in terms of your legs and your arms and, and absolutely, most fundamentally, in your core. One thing that astounds non-crossfitters is that we don't actually focus on core at all. I mean, sometimes we'll have sit-ups in the workout, but for the most part, all of the movements that we do, whether it be box jumps um, or even uh, even um, uh, so the rowing that we do, because we do some rowing work, or whatever it might be, you're, you're constantly engaging your core and your abdomens. And you'll see people, you know, uh, walk out of that gym with six-pack abs, and because they have done, they've not literally, they've not focused at all on, on their core. Just as it's just the result of work, working compound movements. So, it, in addition, and unlike any other fitness program, it actually defines the particular. It actually defines what fitness means. You know, the ability to do, uh, you know, an, an increasing amount of work uh, over. A, decreasing time domain, so they're specific in that sort of a sense. And they also define specific areas of fitness that it's meant to tackle. So there's strength, there's cardiovascular, there's agility, balance, stamina. Uh, go down the line, and you, you, I mean, if you can find another fitness program that is that specific, I'd love to hear it. I'd, like, I'd, become, I'd become very interested in it. But it's the specificity of CrossFit and its approach that every not, not every workout is going to tackle all of these, but over the course of months and months of doing CrossFit, every and being that every day your workout is different, uh, you're going to tackle all these different elements, and you'll find some astounding re uh, results, both in terms of, um, again, your cardiovascular uh, endurance, um, uh, the, the, your, your stamina, even your agility, your balance. And uh, the way they do this is through three primary areas. Uh, there's the Olympic weightlifting that we do. There is We do gymnastics, so we do ring work. Uh, we do ring. We do work on uh, like on uh, monkey bars type things, and uh, and then of course there's the cardiovascular aspect. So we will do some running and we'll do some work on the rowers and so on. So that's it's worked for me personally. I mean, uh, CrossFit's not not without its critics because it can be pretty uh, tough on the body. But I think like anything, you have to be smart about it. Take your rest days. Don't necessarily feel that you have to go all out, 100% out every single time. Uh, common sense is uh, is I think uh, is the best thing. But uh, for me. Uh, it, it works for me because I see the results. It also works for me because it's it's done in a, uh, in a group setting. Uh, one of the problems that I've always had is working individually when it comes yeah. to exercise. You go; these are class environments, and you start to bond with your classmates. It's uh, men and women working together, 
and uh, you know various capabilities and uh, various talents. Everybody's got their strengths and weaknesses. It doesn't matter. We get in there, and the clock goes three, two, one, go, and then we go to town on whatever workout that is. And you know, to be like even today, I just got back from the gym. It was packed. Like we had maybe about thirty people in there, and it was just it's just a, a, a racket of noise, of bars being dropped, people shouting, people screaming, and the music is cranked. And it's just like I, that's what I I thrive off that. It's just tremendous, and you're damn right I'm gonna be back the next day to do that. As opposed to that kind of antiseptic, quiet elevator music environment you get, you know, in the in the um, in the traditional gyms. So this is uh, vastly removed from that. Yeah. So that's uh, that's uh, that's my routine, my routine, and why I've been sticking with CrossFit. This is now the fourth year that I've been doing it. No looking back now. Fantastic. So let me reveal my evil plan here now. Well, the first two, those two general questions, one about your diet and one about your fitness, were kind of aimed at sort of creating the context of this question, which is this. George, all of these are kind of going back in time. They're backward looking. They're going back to the paleo period and uh, embracing both the diet and the, the lifestyle, if you will, imitating chasing those wild animals and and imitating all the movements that are incorporated in the crossfit section at the same time you're a transhumanist meaning transhumanism is all about the future it's all about embracing the next step of technology embracing what's new and incorporating it and turning the old into the new one by abandoning the old one quite often on the way one way or another and yet, in your personal life, it looks like you're embracing those kind of age-old systems. Is there not a contradiction somewhere there? And, and you're right. Even the CrossFit, uh, it, it prides itself on these kinds of uh, ancestral movements, if you will. You know, it's pulling, jumping, uh, dragging, and uh, there's an emphasis on the kinds of movements that we would have in a natural state, you know, as these kinds of uh, paleolithic creatures. So uh, you're right, even the, the eating and the exercise is definitely a, a seeming step back. And uh, it's something that's, you know, obviously not lost on me as a transhumanist. And I sometimes wonder, like, am I looking in the wrong direction here? Uh, but ultimately, I'm, what I'm looking for is efficacy. And it doesn't matter to me, you know, if it's a cybernetic implant or if it's omega-3 fatty acids or if it's box jumps at the gym. If it works, if it's optimizing my health and wellness, uh, then I'm going to be, you're damn right, I'm going to be interested in it. I, I have no bias. Uh, I, I think maybe transhumanists have a, 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 they're so technophilic that there's a bias towards all technologies that, that anything that's old must be bad and old-fashioned and ineffectual and anything that's that's novel and good, uh, that's sort of novel and, and cutting edge that's got to be good for you. I think that's overly, obviously, clearly over, overly simplistic. Um, what I'd like to think, though, is moving forward, and I do, I do still consider myself very much a progressive and a transhumanist, and I'm constantly wanting to, um, you know, exceed the, the limitations of, of, of human capacity is to combine the best of both worlds. So now that, you know, let's say I've got my diet dialed in and my, my fitness dialed in, now okay, now what else can I do? Perhaps it's maybe more augmentative um, in that sense. So, uh, for example, um, uh, exper experimenting, for, uh, let's say, with some nootropics. That, I think, is definitely non, let's say, paleo or non-ancestral and definitely looks to technology. So uh, my recent thing is uh, choline and seeing what that will, that will do in terms of, uh, in terms of um, you know, my uh, focus and concentration. And uh, my, the early results with that have been very positive. So in that sense, you know, the, again, the quantified self aspect and, uh, you know, looking at some, maybe some, um, 
some new things. I'm, I'm definitely in, in favor of that. And of course, one cannot deny as well as transhumanists, many of us were early adopters. We're, pre we're pretty much right there when a new uh, advancement uh, is released or whether it be a new app or a new way to network with people um, to kind of you know, thrive off the synergistic effects of, let's say, some new technologies, we are the first ones that are there. There's no question about it. And that's absolutely transhumanistic. It may be exosomatic in, that, in the sense that it doesn't, you know, it's not part of my, my body's capacity, but hey, look, we, there's post-humanism and there's post-humanism, and both are very valid. And the post-humanism uh, from the academic sense is, is the suggestion that we are increasingly offloading uh, ourselves and our capacities uh, and our mind even to our externalities. That's absolutely true. That is what we're doing. So to be a transhumanist and to think completely from an insular perspective of the flesh and the flesh barrier, is, I think, is a, is a, is a terrible mistake. Is a, the, the, the blurring lines between our bodies and our environment are getting increasingly that blurrier. And uh, there, in other words, what I'm trying to say here is we need to constantly even look at those things that we don't consider to be technologically uh, or you know an enhancement specifically, but they are in fact enhancing and augmenting the way we think, the way we relate, and the way we communicate. There's no question about it. So in this, at the same time, that this is why I'm trying to put this idea out there of primal transhumanism, is that you can still be a progressive, you can still uh, look to uh, you know, exceed your capacities, uh, and at the same time look toward more traditional means of doing so. And again, the most, at the most fundamental level, I look at all of this stuff that I'm doing as a life extension strategy. This is part of my, you know, you know my effort for uh, to increase longevity, to enter into my elderly years, both as healthy you know, as I possibly can, to push the envelope, to you know, I have the same goals as you know Aubrey de Grey and Ray Kurzweil does, which is to basically you know pass that bridge, if you will, uh, such that we can continue to reap the benefits of uh, medical technologies as they're being developed to progress life further and further and further into the future. I don't want to be, and I'm sure you don't want to be either, uh, that last generation that missed out on uh, radical life extension. And because maybe it'll come in into effect in the year 2065 or 2085, we don't know that. There's there's so many wild cards that are in play here, both in terms of socio politics and in terms of the medical technologies and the rate of development. So right now, you cannot fool around with that. And we know what's at stake as transhumanists. We know what's at stake as those in, that are interested in the singularity and the rise of AI. We know what kind of a, what kind of a future may await us in terms of how spectacular it could be. And uh, I'm not about to fool around with that. And I'm you know right now. Uh, I mean, there are some transhumanists who are content to sit on the couch and you know, and and or flick through uh, their social networks and uh, and write about the wonderful things that will happen in the future. But uh, I think that uh, they're going to necessarily they potentially could pay the price at some point for not maybe missing out on the boat. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a couple of other topics that I would like to to discuss today during our conversation. So I'd like to move on beyond the paleo diet, as as interesting as it may be. Um, so let me go to some of the latest work that you guys have been doing at the Institute for Emergent uh, um, IEET. That's yeah, the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies. Exactly. Thank you. Uh, and, and more specifically, the work related to, I think if the term is correct, uh, the human equivalent uh, non-person rights. That's right. Uh, a little about a, a year or so ago, and this has been something that I've been thinking about for many, many years, is um, what's referred to, uh, well, uh, stepping even back even further, is this whole issue behind personhood theory, and that is, okay, what is a person? And it's this acknowledgement that not all persons are humans, and not all humans are persons, that really what we're talking about are criteria-based distinctions, that that's what gives rise to personhood, that there's a threshold or even a, a spectrum, excuse me, with which we have persons. So it got me 
and I, I got thinking about this, um, you know, at, from the perspective as a bioethicist and thinking, you know, let's say we have somebody like the Terry Schiavo case where we have, we have a person who's a, a, in, a, in, a, in a profoundly vegetative state, uh, post-mortem autopsy revealed that she had a, a brain that had shrunk to the size of a walnut. Like there was nothing, there was nothing happening there. There was no seat of consciousness, if you will, in subjectivity. So in that sense, that, that's not a person. That's not somebody who's engaging uh, in the world, not receiving any input uh, and so forth. Uh, as distasteful as that might seem to some to some people, to some particularly from traditional backgrounds, um, from a practical standpoint, that that's uh, does not qualify in the same way that a, a fully robust person does, which could be, for example, an, a non-human. So, if you look at uh, the great apes, for example, uh, even the cetaceans like dolphins and whales, and I think elephants, uh, when you start to look at them, look at their behavior, even study. Uh, go deep inside their brain and basically we're able to map the same kinds of um, functions that, uh, in terms of their you know, ability to forge uh, relationships, their, the, even the theory of other mind, is we're finding quite uh, startlingly that they're very similar to our own in terms of uh, our, our capacity. So we have no choice at this point. We cannot really withhold our consent anymore when it comes to saying, hey, look, uh, there are persons in the same way that, that we as humans are persons. So there, the implication there, uh, what it occurred to me was that we start to need to be looking out for their rights, perhaps uh, in a way um, that's a bit deeper than we have. And I was, I have to admit, I was very much inspired by the work of the Princeton bioethicist Peter Singer, who started the Great Eight Project many years ago. And he's essentially looking for the same thing, which is human equivalent rights for the Great Apes. And I know that there's some other groups out there looking for, let's say, dolphin uh, personhood and so on. But I quickly realized that there's no group out there that's looking out for the the you know, the welfare of all persons, whatever they may be. So that's uh, what we did. So about a year or so ago, we started the, uh, at the IET, we started the, this program called the Rights of the Non-Human Persons Program. And what we're trying to do is, is exactly that, secure human equivalent rights for these animals. And what we mean by that, it's mostly protections based. So we're not necessarily saying they, they should have the right to vote, for example, and do that, those sorts of things. Clearly, um, capacities being what they are, there are some limitations. But for the same, for the same reason, we don't, for example, say that, um, you know, let's say a profoundly uh, disabled person uh, is not a person. Um, we have to look at it for that, that same kind of frame. But what we are saying is that, they're, that these animals should not be confined to zoos. They should not be made to perform tricks at, you know, aquatic centers. Uh, they should not be confined to spaces uh, experimented upon, uh, you know, could be, uh, illicit trading of them. These are uh, off the table. The way, the simple, the most simple way of putting it is: look, if you wouldn't do it to a human, you wouldn't do it to one of these animals as well. So that's that's. Mm -hmm. So which are these animals that you're talking about, other than apes so, and perhaps? That's dolphins? it. It's it's a very short list. So all the great apes, including bonobos and uh, chimpanzees. We also have uh, uh, all the dolphins and all the whales and, uh, and elephants. There are other candidate species that we're looking into, such, uh, uh, for example, uh, Ben Gurt. Uh, yes, actually. Uh, the, and that's a very strange case because they are, it's non-mammalian and uh, very alien, if you will, aquatic. Uh, well, not that the dolphin is an aquatic, but uh, the dolphin is a ma an aquatic mammal. This is purely, you know, uh, these encephalopods. And uh, I'm sure many of your uh, podcast uh, Listeners are aware that the octopus behavior is very complex. I mean, they've been known to be very mischievous and playful, and they can do engage in problem solving. And uh, we need that's certainly an area that we need to uh, explore a bit further. 
Uh, and uh, so there's the encephalopods, and, and then as well, Ben Gersel brought it to my attention. He was, uh, he was very much a supporter of this program, but he said, you better include the African gray parrot. And so I looked into it. Ah. I, I looked into it. I'm like, sure enough, uh, they are astounding. It's one of his and, hobbies. Yes. Yeah. And uh, the stu- some of the best studies reveal that they actually have about the human equivalent of about a three- to four-year-old child, which is significant. And that, I think, would qualify, really, as a person, clearly. And... Uh, so that, these are ones that are kind of the outliers that what, what I'd like to do, given more resources and more time, is to actually get into the science here. What we need is a neurological, not just like an empirical uh, kind of understanding, but an, absolute, an, an actual neurological understanding of what are the seats of personhood? What are the maps of personhood cognitively? What are the parts of the brain that we can look at and say, aha, this animal has that. Therefore, you know, it needs to be part of this whole list of criteria that make up a person. Then let me give you an example. Uh, uh, we have mirror neurons in our brain. What the mirror neurons do, it's, it's, the, it's what actually enables you to be able to have a theory of an other mind. Like, Nicole, I know that you're a conscious being. Um, I'm not about to insult you or uh, hurt your feelings because I know, I, 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 why would I do that? I know that I, I have this feeling, I, I can empathize with you and, and have these, uh, these associations. Now, as much as we like to think that I was taught that, it's not entirely the case. That's actually a cognitive capacity that you have as a result of the mirror neurons. That's, what the, that's why they're referred to as mirror neurons. It enables you to kind of mirror yourself and to see yourself, so to speak, in another person or another creature. And uh, what we've discovered as well is, is when we've uh, studied the brains of, let's say, whales, for example, is we've discovered that they have the exact same cells, these mirror neurons. And they're actually identical. So we know that the whales must therefore have a theory of other minds and must also be considered towards each other and their feelings and, and so on. So that's definitely, check that off the list. That's one of maybe several criteria. And these are the things that we have to work on is, okay, what are all the, all the various criteria that make up a person, both from a behavioral perspective in terms of what we observe them doing, but also from the, a neurological perspective in terms of what their latent capacities are as thinking and considerate and social and emotional creatures. So, uh, yeah, i I would, and maybe uh, uh, the African gray parrot and encephalopods aren't the aren't the the limit as well. I suspect that there actually may be more personhood candidates out there. What I think what we need to do is just start off with a small group because it's it's not only is this a scientific problem, it's also a social problem because we have to get buy-in right now on the whole idea of there being non-human persons. Because that's actually right now a very radical idea. Because right now most people will just say, "How dare you say such a thing?" The only people that can Oh, sorry, the only the only persons that exist out there are humans, and that this is a this is an indignity to humanity. This demeans us and makes us look like another animal in the forest, and uh, that uh, lessens what it means to be a to be a human being. And I think we have to get rid of that uh, speciesist attitude. And uh, if anything, I, I think that if we were to recognize, let's say, that dolphins are persons, actually, that's my prediction. Um, is that dolphins will be the first, and orca whales potentially, because the orca whale actually is a dolphin. It's a, a subspecies of dolphin that um, they will be the first um, non-human persons recognized. And in fact, uh, PETA just recently, I think a couple of weeks ago, this being February of 20, um, uh, 2012, uh, they, uh, they had a very interesting uh, lawsuit against SeaWorld where they named five plaintiffs, uh, specifically five orca whales by name. And of course, they were represented by a lawyer. And what they were saying was that they actually deserve to be protected by the U.S. Constitution, specifically the 13th Amendment, which forbids slavery. And that the case that they were making was that they are actually enslaved. 
and they're being forced to perform these tricks, uh, you know, according to uh, their schedule, and also forced to be confined in these ridiculously small spaces. You take an average orca whale, it swims 100 kilometers a day, and to be forced into these, these claustrophobic tanks must be unbelievably difficult for them, and I'm sure no, no small cause of both, you know, extreme confinement and depression amongst these creatures. So... Um, what made this case particularly important, not just the pre simply the, I mean, that the fact that they actually went through with this, was that a, a judge actually listened to this case and he heard the arguments both for and against. Of course, the SeaWorld lawyer was um, saying that this is a waste of time and ludicrous and saying that, uh, that, that invoking even slippery slope arguments, saying that if we allow this, then eventually you know, we won't be able to allow sniffing dogs sniff for bombs and drugs. So. Uh, this kind of guilt by association, or you know, this kind of way to distract perhaps the issue at hand. But and uh, I think frustratingly, when the uh, verdict came down, the judge said that very explicitly. He said animals are not persons, and it was the explicitness of that language that actually astounded me because it tells me a couple things. Uh, one, we still got ways to go, but two, he actually gets it. He actually that judge understood fundamentally what the issue was, and he was not prepared to make that precedent yet because he knew what the implications would be. So to me, that's actually a, vi a huge victory because that means that the next case may, may lose, the next case may lose, but we're going to get there eventually where this is going to be a normative idea. Sorry, this, this is a normative concept that will have to be phased into public acceptance and social acceptance such that we can come to become comfortable with the idea that you know, we can have uh, animals out there that are also considered persons and protected by some fundamental rights. George, you just mentioned the sort of uh, some of the neuro neurological requirements that that would allow you to place certain species on that list. But what about the emotional ones? What about uh, suffering, or uh, and and more specifically, uh, the suffering of of say animals that we can observe in our daily lives, like our pets. Mm -hmm. Many of us have dogs and cats, and um, there's a an annual global outcry about uh, Canada's, uh, you know, annual hunt for seals and stuff like that. Why shouldn't we put animals like seals or dogs and cats on that list? They so are actually, exhibiting all the elements of emotional suffering yeah. associated with death and so on, or, or when they're wounded and, you know, not killed on the first shot or whatever. Uh, I mean, horrible suffering, really. And yeah. why shouldn't we place them on that list? It's an excellent question, and it's one uh, I'm asked quite often, uh, particularly pet lovers. You know, my cats. You know, they, the first argument is my cat has such a personality. You know, and uh, such. You know, uh, like you said, even has emotional capacities. That why would you not? You know, recognize that as a person. And I'm actually very sympathetic to that. I do believe there is there can be such a thing as a dog person and a cat person. We have to kind of lose a certain kind of anthropomorphism about this. What I don't necessarily mean to say is that. The more like humans that they are, the better that they are, or the more like persons that they are. Really, I, I, and I, this is a hard concept to kind of convince people of, but I'm trying to be as non-anthro about this as possible and saying we're simply looking for a specific set of criteria, a certain set of uh, characteristics that lead to these kinds of you know, in, uh, endowments and, and behaviors and so on. Uh, that, uh, that's so... My first priority here, uh, as, uh, you know, as the program founder here, is to get initial buy-in uh, for a very select group of animals. These are kind of like, in my idea, like the no-brainers. Particularly the dolphin, like it's got always got a smiley face. It's cute. We don't like, you know, people are getting increasingly sensitive to seeing them having to perform at, at these aquatic centers. 
that's the baby steps approach that I have. That, that the first thing we have to do is get acceptance about that. I, I totally suspect that given success in that particular area, we can continue to push the boundaries of what we can do in terms of the protections of other animals as well. And I look at personhood as a not a not a binary thing. I don't think it's like you either are or you're not. I do kind of see it more along the lines of a spectrum uh, that that essentially that even if you are, let's say, on the lower end of the spectrum in terms of your capacities, that you still have deserving, let's say, of a certain set of rights and freedoms. Maybe not all of them. This might sound maybe you know prejudicial on my part. Maybe I'll be proven wrong and somebody can maybe put a more elegant kind of uh, uh, solution, a more sophisticated solution than what I've got. Poised, uh, what I'm posing here, but uh, essentially that uh, exactly what you're suggesting is that maybe an enhanced set or, uh, or an increased sense of how we can protect these particular animals and maybe even change the terminology with which we use to describe them as being a subset of persons or a kind of person. And I do believe specifically we need to do that through the frame of their species. So say this is a dog person, this is a cat person, this is a pig person, and so on. And uh, that's, that would be totally fine with me. So I think that's kind of like uh, phase 2.0, maybe even phase 3.0 of our project. But what I want to assure your listeners is that uh, I am sympathetic to that, and that's on my to-do list. So um, eventually uh, we'll get there. That, that, that's fantastic. And, and then when we get there, what are the implications is another important question, right? Imagine we've done it, which would take a lot of time and effort oh, yeah. and, and struggles, but then what? Then we are, we are poised to take a giant step forward in terms of eliminating a lot of the suffering that goes on on this planet, particularly in, in uh, what we do to animals. And, uh, you know, I, it's, it's funny, I was just talking recently with, uh, uh, in, in another interview, uh, we brought up David Pierce's uh, hedonistic imperative and the whole abolitionist movement, which is an extremely radical idea, which is that actually all suffering can be uh, eliminated from the planet, uh, not just to human suffering, but even all uh, all animal suffering as well. And you know, obviously, it doesn't take uh, too much time to realize that that's a, that's a, probably the most massive project that we could ever hope to undertake. Uh, and just logistically speaking, and the uh, how complex such a thing would be boggles the mind. But uh, but if, uh, what, that's my way of kind of answering your question to show that really there is no limit, if you will, in terms of how far we can we can progress this. Uh, maybe the limit is the fact that we can eventually end all all suffering on the planet. But for me, uh, it's an incremental thing, and it's going to, have to be one step at a time. So for me to answer your question, it's it's that it, it would both it would be it would we'd be doing our part as stewards of this planet as the most intelligent species on this planet who we should know better than what we're doing uh, in terms of particularly in terms of our treatment of animals that we can in fact take these iterative steps to now you know now let's say okay we rec if we recognize dogs and cats in this sort of a way what does that mean that we can can't do to them for so to speak although right now I think that those animals have it really well off there are, there are a number of animal rights people including Peter Singer who are actually opposed to human or to animal companions that is that it's demeaning to a dog or demeaning to a cat to own them and have them live in your house and take them for walks and so on and I actually this is where we disagree um, uh, to me I don't think the dog feels demeaned uh, if anything, I think the dog is, uh, knowing dog psychology, feels part of the pack and part of the whole family, and is engaging in that that pack life to does, you know, to the best of you know its abilities. Uh, I, I think any kind of idea of indignity is a human abstraction, and it's a human uh, a labeling of the situation that the dog is not even experiencing. So. Um, 
my concern would be more, I think, not towards animal companions, but more, let's say, animals that are that are subjugated by us. So, of course, agricultural animals and uh, uh, animals for testing, medical testing, and of course, performance animals as well. So, I think those are the more practical areas that we need to be sensitive to. Yeah, uh, I was going to say, what what would happen with farm animals? What would happen with animals which we use today to conduct certain kind of medical or other experiments? Right. And what would that uh, how would that impact our ability to, say, produce new vaccines, yeah. uh, new technologies, food to feed our right. ever-growing population? Yeah, and uh, you know, at the risk of sounding uh, contradictory, uh, based on the, the first part of our conversation, you know, basically reverting back to meat eating, I, I, I don't necessarily feel that meat eating is, sorry, extracting meat from living thinking creatures is the way to continue in the future. I think certainly now it's how I choose to. Uh, to get my meat, but I don't necessarily feel that I'd like to continue that practice indefinitely and into the future. There are there are other options, particularly from an agricultural perspective. Uh, in addition to let's say the lab-grown meat idea that we discussed, you can also let's say engineer agriculture such that they don't have any conscious awareness, uh, so that you basically create brainless pigs and brainless cows. They, they can't possibly feel. There's no emotional, maybe not brainless, but those parts of the brain are gone. Mm-hmm. So they they they're just machines, if you will, that are making meat on them, on themselves. Again, that might seem really disgusting or distasteful to some uh, to some, but hey, okay, let's let's take a let's let's lose the yuck factor element of it and think of it from a practical perspective, from a consequentialist perspective. What harm is being done to a cow that actually cannot feel the capacity to be harmed? It has no brain. Um, that's kind of I think maybe some so some engineering, genetic engineering and some really uh, you know experimental engineering in that sense might be the way to go. Now, to answer your question about medical testing, again, that's a big one. Uh, I think already there's this is this is this is an issue for today because we're progressively experimenting less and less on animals, except unfortunately in the United States where it's still a bit out of control. Uh, they still test on um, uh, on some of the uh, on primates and so on. But what they're trying to do in it in its place is set up computer modeling. And other types of analogs, such that we don't actually have to test on a living, breathing, feeling creature, and that we can actually just use our computer sciences uh, to get us this, uh, the same sorts of results. I also think that we should open up the door to more human testing, to volunteer testing, where you have actual consent. We don't have the consent of these animals, uh, but you can have, let's say, somebody who's near end stage uh, of, a, of a disease, or somebody who's simply experimental enough they want to maybe try something. Uh, you could get a lot of buy in that way, so I think there's a number of an- uh, potential solutions here for uh, for that particular area. But I'm not, but I'm not going to lie to you and say that it's not going to, let's say, inhibit or uh, retard the development of, let's say, some pharmaceuticals or other technologies. It, it clearly will have that impact. But you have to ask yourself at what cost, though, um, when you think of the amount of uh, suffering that goes on in these in these labs, the drilling their skulls open and causing suffering and burning them and all that stuff. Um, it seems disproportionate to me in terms of what it might be actually looking to remedy. And then how is that issue connected to the issue of, to the actual or potential issue of animal enhancement in the future, which is one of the sort of notable transhumanist issues, I think. Uh, how are, are they connected and in what way if they are? Uh, interesting. Um, I'm not sure that they are connected. Um, what what I've said, and you're right, I've been an, I've been an advocate of animal enhancement, also referred to as animal uplift, is the idea that I have here is it's more of a developmental view of 
the trajectory of intelligence on this planet. So it's more of a, of a look into the deep future, not necessarily, let's say, the next 20 years, but maybe the next 100 years plus. Um, and that's the idea that we are progressively, as a species, moving away from our biological state more towards the so-called post-biological or even a, a digital sort of a state. And at the same time, of course, augmenting our intelligence, engaging in perhaps different realms of activity, activity that, we, that we were heretofore incapable of engaging in. So in other words, new spaces of exploration altogether. And I don't necessarily mean in space. I mean more in terms of our, of our, of our digital capacities. And the idea of us going through this transition and at the same time leaving the natural state is exactly that. It seems a bit off-putting to me and even a bit distasteful. That the concern I have is that why would we allow Darwinian processes to continue when we could put, kind of put it to an end, that we're kind of past Darwin, if you will, we need to kind of put it out of its misery. And because why, why I'm opposed to Darwin uh, and, and uh, Darwinianism in particular, though, is it's, it's, it's a kind of a crude method for the propagation of, and continuation of life, which is basically this whole survival of the, of this, of the fittest mentality, which is devoid of compassion, and uh, it's, it's brutal it's, it's, uh, in the way it goes about what it needs to do. And if you think about all the human suffering that goes on in the world, uh, one you know, can only imagine the kind of suffering that goes on in the animal kingdom. It's, uh, it's in, uh, incalculable. And this is definitely the concern of thinkers like David Pierce and, uh, and other abolitionists. And um, my thinking is that, okay, why don't we bring them along with us into the radical future and kind of reshape the ecology of the planet in a profound way. And this gets into some, um, some uh, you know, techno, what's referred to as techno-Gaian ideas, uh, you know, some real progressive environmentalism. The idea that we could completely remold the ecological system of the planet, create a kind of Eden, if you will, where we have exquisite control over so much of its processes. And, and, and I'm not saying we can have control of you know every gust of wind, for example, or every ant colony, but simply that at a, at a, maybe at a 40-foot level, we have control over um, those factors that lead to the emergent effects and chaotic effects that are part of the this grand concert that is uh, the the uh, the planetary ecosystem and, eco and ecology. So uh, as part of that, we might want to seriously consider uplifting. Uh, our animal companions, or not our animal companions, but all of the animals on the planet. Um, maybe not all of them, like ants may not be worth it. Uh, may, we have to decide at some point, you know, where, what, what's the threshold for inclusion into, you know, post-biological existence? And uh, what kind of enhancements would we wish to give these animals? These are all very challenging questions. I'm not going to sit here until I have all the answers. Because mm -hmm. um, one risks also kind of like maybe post-humanizing these animals, uh, my, that's not necessarily the goal here. I think the goal is to simply perhaps endow them with an increased sense of their, of their species and let them kind of take it from there. So that's kind of, go ahead. You, yeah, sounds like, my sounds like my a concern question. is this, though, that aren't we running the risk of sort of anthropomorphizing them in, in a way? Uh, because, I mean, I can see how, for example, a dog that has lost both of its hind legs uh, and then gets like a two-wheeled sort of a wheelchair prosthesis uh, benefits clearly from it. And, and I would uh, venture to say that we don't require the dog's explicit consent to do that because mm -hmm. we're clearly alleviating suffering if right. we provide it with such a prosthesis. Or a dolphin which has lost its flipper gets a flipper prosthesis, right? But I think we don't have the consent to sort of provide them with a cognitive uh, enhancement or, or a neuro implant which would take them to our present level of intelligence. 
because at that moment, first they didn't give us their explicit consent, but secondly, I don't have an answer to the question as to whether they're better off or worse off than they were before. I don't know. Yeah, and again, these are, these are exact questions that I that I tackle with on a regular basis, and I, there's a couple of angles that I've that approach this with, and one is uh, using the uh, uh, the frameworks as established by the uh, the sociologist uh, John Rawls, and he had he kind of did this thought experiment uh, that re was referred to as the blind veil experiment, where in terms of um, uh, meeting out a, a great distribution of you know primary goods and and maximizing social justice. He said that uh, you basically need to. Uh, the way he the way he set up the experiment was that you sh you should put people take all of society, and or at least a set group of society, and kind of put them behind what's called this this veil of knowledge where they don't know what their station is in life. They don't know if they're rich. They don't know if they're middle class or uh, disabled. They don't know they don't know anything about their situation in life. And then they're to ask them, okay, uh, what would be you know. The, the most kind of the most reasonable or, or the, um, uh, the the least I guess um, uh, desirable state to be in that society and he said that if you did this collectively you'd end up with you know the maximizing a kind of sense of social justice and I, I figured that knowledge of one species should probably also be included uh, in this kind of thought experiment that you know if you were if you were to uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, enter into this uh, into this thought experiment, and then at the end of it, you were told, "Well, actually, you're going to be you no. Know, you're actually you you and society are incarnated as uh, as an elephant. You know, how would you how would you feel about that, knowing that you could have been a human, for example? So the, the kind of question the question that I that I have here is like, if, if you knew in advance, uh, you know, what you could have been, what would you have chosen? And I think that maybe a great eight would have actually chosen to be human. I don't know, uh, but that's one way that I've that I've chosen to kind of think this through and maybe getting a sense of, a, in other words, this is a way of inferring applied consent to a certain degree. Another way of going about it is uh, what I've called uplift sampling. So let's say we take a chimpanzee and we give it uh, incrementally um, more, uh, uh, more of a cognitive capacity to the point where it can actually articulate its desires. And we would say, do you like where this is going? Because you remember what it was like to be an unenhanced ape. You know, it sounds it sounds pretty extreme, but um, basically ask it at that point and say, you know, is this an experiment worth continuing? Uh, were you happier back then? Uh, you know, in, in a way, in a way, almost asking them to be a spokesperson for their species, and maybe not necessarily one chip specifically, but we would sample across maybe several, uh, many. Maybe, I don't know how many we could do this, but this would give us a sense as to whether or not you know what you're saying is exactly right. And just as an aside, by the way. Uh, and, and this speaks particularly well, I think, to the issue at hand and why, you know, I'm, I'm somewhat, in, well, why I am in support of it. Um, I'm sure you saw the, the Rise of the Planet of the Apes film last year. Yeah, yeah I did. And it, uh, to me, it's, I was so excited by it because it actually, it actually posed a very um, optimistic view or even a, a, a very enlightened view of enhancement, particularly animal enhancement, mm -hmm. because you had... You had this one, this one chimpanzee, the uh, the Caesar character, our protagonist, who uh, was forced to go back to this kind of natural state. Right, he was sent back to the sanctuary uh, be because he was misbehaving in society. And so now you had this this ape that had been raised as a human, had pretty much human level capacity, and was now forced to go back to a, this primitive sort of life. But most importantly, in and amongst those who are unuplifted, so basically, you know, regular, uh, tri you know, 
chimpanzees and it was hell for him he was he was brutalized there he was bored out of his mind it was in a way this kind of like a um, a tremendous kind of step back for him and uh what it ended up, what the movie ended up showing after that was okay, what 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 did he see as being kind of the solution out of this you know it was using his head and in fact it was uplifting his comrades around him and it was really what it was was uh, uh, uh showing that it was it was enhancement and intelligence as a liberatory force that it was through uh, you know, in being able to better engage, you know, in 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 their environment and having the smarts to kind of get out of their situation, that they could achieve their ends. In this case, get the hell out of that sanctuary and go and ex- basically go back to the forest or wherever it was, just so that they could be free and do what it is that they wanted to do. And to me, that was unbelievable, uh, an unbelievable kind of message that was put in there by the writers. And maybe I'm giving them more credit than they, they than they deserve, but I, I think not. I think it was a very uh, deliberate attempt to show this. So, uh, in this sense, what it can it's kind of maybe taking from this movie and applying it to the uplift uh, ideas that I put forward is it, I think, and this even even harkens a bit to uh, James Hughes's idea of democratic transhumanism, which is basically the idea that it's through enhanced humans that we can enhance the democratic process and become more uh, that the that the polit the politic, if you will, and we as citizens can better engage in the issues can improved democratic institutions and other kinds of institutions that are all in our collective best interest. Because right now, arguably, the problem with democracy is that we have an electorate that's largely uninformed. They're victims of their own cognitive biases, victims of, uh, or, you know, they're, the, the class, not victims, but their, their, their voting patterns are subject to their social uh, place in life and, and so on. That it's not necessarily, uh, let's say, optimized uh, from a the, the way democracies should work. So enhancement can also be looked at, particularly animal enhancement, as a way to politicize animals, to give them the means with which they can better govern themselves. And I know this is obviously a very controversial idea because the idea here is that they're that just out of the state of nature that they're happy, that they like you know hanging out in the jungle and eating the the grass, and that's that's as good as it gets. And maybe we're the ones that are messed up, and that it's modern society that's completely a, a disaster. And uh, you know these are hard questions, and uh, but ultimately, I think, you know, would we would we want to go back to the plains and uh, you know be uh, be you know ravaged by uh, by nature and not have you know these kinds of technological endowments that we've come to know and love everything from immunizations through to band aids and surgery and anesthesia, um, but even just knowing that we're protected by institutions and protected by rights and freedoms that uh, that why shouldn't uh, we give an- animals, particularly let's say the the ones that I've talked about in the personhood program, at least give them this, these uplifts such that they can again better govern themselves and become democratized and politicized. Mm-hmm. So, George, um, one of the sort of major takeaway points that I had from our first interview with you was um, the thought that. Mass extinction is the simplest explanation for why we are seeing an uncolonized galaxy. Um, and the other thing was that uh, during our first interview, when I asked you about uh, our chances of survival, I think the the reply that you gave, gave was almost nil. So uh, first of all, I want to ask you if the the number has changed since our last conversation, uh, and if if it has, why? And second, uh, I'd ask you to elaborate on that whole idea. Yeah, I'm thinking. Um, 
I still think it's pretty close to nil, unfortunately. But that that hasn't stopped me. I kind of like my mission now as a as a SETI studier and uh, as somebody who's looking at, for example, uh, these the, the kind of the uh, visions of the deep future as to where we could end up. I'm desperately looking for. Uh, you know, a theory or some kind of a solution that will change my mind. Uh, that's that's uh, I'm looking for these kind of glimmers of optimism. But I have to be honest with you. I mean, I, I'm I'm gravely pessimistic, and uh, uh, I'm at the risk of repeating what we had said in the last interview. It's simply the the, the logistical challenge of juggling. Uh, not just one, you know, apocalyptic risk, but multiple apocalyptic risks. Everything ranging from the ongoing struggle to manage our, our, our nuclear arsenal, through to some pending technologies such as molecular nanotechnology, and specifically the the weaponized molecular nanotechnology, and even things like uh, weaponizing artificial intelligence, or an, an AI gone simply horribly wrong in terms of uh, its first uh, or ultimate instanti instantiation. And those other ones we probably don't even know about, and uh, how we can possibly uh, collectively manage all this is beyond me, and I think it may uh, it provides unfortunately an elegant solution to the to the Fermi paradox that it's this this great filter, if you will, that uh, that no civilization can really surpass, and that it eventually just ends up imploding in on itself and uh, and gets snuffed out before it can actually you know do anything uh, from a cosmological or an intergalactic perspective. So um, now that said, um, I'm still very much interested, like I said, in other possible escape hatches, and uh, that's you know one thing that excites me to a certain degree about the whole singularitarian aspect is that perhaps it's through that particular avenue that we'll get our act together, and that we'll be able to find a kind of mode of an ex mode of, an, of existence that will allow us to continue into the future. What I refer to as a kind of um, adaptationist, uh, uh, you know, end game, if you will, that we will it might be a narrow area in terms of an escape hatch but it'll be still it'll, even in, in its adaptationism it will allow us to f continue into the future and what that might actually be who's to say um, it may very well be for example um, you know this kind of uh, migration into smaller space that what when jo what John smart refers to as messed space and that we will we just simply will be looking that space is going to be in our rear view mirror and we have no interest in colonizing the galaxy because there's going to be so much more to do let's say in massive supercomputers uh, which is why therefore perhaps the uh, the ultimate end state for a civilization is simply the construction uh, of massive supercomputers uh, like G uh, Jupiter brains or matryoshka brains and so on and that if you do the number crunching you can see that uh, you can quite literally create universes within universes within such uh, such massive structures. Uh, the, the, the key, of course, will be to continue to power computation and to deal with the residual effects of computation, such as uh, heat dissipation and so on. Uh, but there's even already models in place. I spoke with uh, Stephen Wolfram at a conference uh, last year who explained to me that there are already models out there for um, uh, the zero di uh, uh, heat dissipated uh, computational models, which is very exciting to hear. But anyways... Um, yeah, I mean, for all we know, for example, we are currently dwelling within what's really kind of like a tic-tac-toe universe, and uh, we think we in our, our small paleo brains think it's 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 pretty badass and pretty complex, but until we create that chess universe, uh, we ha we don't really know what uh, you know what what could, what are the possibilities. So, for there could be uh, you know adding adding, for example, a dimension to our experience might be exponential in terms of what it does to our interests, our activities, and the spaces with which to explore, albeit, albeit in a digital sort of a space. So um, I, I, what I'll say to you, while I, while I feel that you know, extinction is still the likely scenario, um, I will not sit here and tell you that there aren't other 
possibilities. Is that at least there's a bit of that kind of like hope at the end of the the tragic story uh, that. Uh, and, and that, that this is potentially an area worth exploring, which is why I keep wanting to go into that, that area to say, yes, you know, actually, maybe we can explain. Let, let me provide an alternative uh, explanation, too, given by William Gibson in, in his uh, latest book and, and in one podcast interview that I listened to him uh, probably last week, uh, where he says that basically uh, what he's noticed and what he, uh, he wants all of us to be aware of is the fact that when futurists and science fiction writers get to a certain age, then they start looking at the world and comparing it to the world that they were seeing when they were young. And of course, they have to come to terms with their own mortality and the fact that everything was better when they were young. Not because that everything was better, but simply because they were young. And therefore, they end up committing the fallacy of claiming that the world is coming to an end, that the young generation is the worst young generation that ever came to be, that the dangers to, to us as a society are greater than they've ever been, and uh, that we are soon going to reach the end of the world. And uh, examples, you know, range from, you know, from Mary Shelley's Frankenstein to H.G. Wells to, to many other um, futurists and, and sci-fi authors. Uh, even uh, I, I went to, to watch recently uh, Robert J. Sawyer talking on uh, Humanity 2.0. Uh, and uh, he said that he's a minority among science fiction uh, writers because for the last 200 years, most uh, sci-fi authors uh, have th that kind of an apocalyptic vision of the future. <laughs> uh, so d don't you think that that one way or another, I mean, your transhumanism, your diet, your sort of health uh, regime, your desire to enhance your longevity, all of those are creating uh, the perfect conditions in which, you know, you would come up with a conclusion that, yes, our chances of surviving are almost zero. Uh, yeah, I know. Well, I mean, basically, it's like, how are you going to live? Like, am I going to, you know, crawl on the couch and, like, moan for the next, you know, the rest of my life oh woe is me we're doomed as a species like i think that's kind of futile because we don't you're right we don't know i don't know um uh, i think i have to go under the assumption that uh we're going to pull through this and we'll figure it out we'll have a spectacular future and hopefully be you know be part of that and i i, I really don't uh, i mean i, I kind of I, I i do get the doom and gloomness of science fiction it certainly makes for more interesting stories it might even make for more uh, accurate stories in, sense of, in, in the sense of this uh, hard uh, science involved. Because uh, ultimately, you know, if you're to really, like you said, if you're to push me, you know, George, what do you really think is going to happen? Well, I'm sorry to say I don't think we're going we're gonna to survive it. But that, that doesn't mean my life is going to come to a stop. I, I still have to, uh, to live day by day and, 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 and hope that we, you know, like I said, we hope that we, we, we do pull through. But one thing I do want to add to this conversation is... Uh, while I agree, it was William Gibson that I think you were quoting, while I agree that every generation is somewhat guilty of this and this, these kinds of recurring patterns, um, I, I do think, though, that as we're getting a sense as to where we're heading in the future, that it is an order of magnitude more dangerous than it ever has been. And now that we, we are now, you know, we've, we've never been, you know, a species in possession of apocalyptic weapons, and we are now, and we're going to be increasingly um, uh, in the possession of, you know, much more uh, threatening weapons 
uh, that that had these kinds of global scale in terms of their devastation, and that's unprecedented territory. And uh, I, I, so I think it's maybe even a bit trivial and trite to suggest that oh, we're just being you know uh, you know worrisome again, and it's just same old you know generational problem. So uh, we, I don't think we should understate the dangers that we're heading into. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I certainly agree that point uh, with that point, and I and I believe it's it's a very valid point because I mean it's one thing to be using a an Iron Age sort, it's another thing to right. be using, you know, the latest in uh, biological weapons of mass destruction, for example, which are the cheapest oh, uh, yeah. uh, WMDs there are at the moment, right. at least. But let me move on our conversation here to 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 the next step here, which is um, connected to that idea about finding SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. I actually uh, spent some time in NASA this summer and I uh, had uh, the pleasure of attending a lecture given by Seth Shostak, uh, who is not only very knowledgeable, but he's the funniest, uh, one of the funniest speakers I've ever seen wow. on stage. He has a killer I've never, never met him, never seen him yeah. speak, so it's kind of uh, neat to hear you say that. He's so funny. I mean, his lecture is actually posted on my blog. Um, I, I actually have the audio recording of it and his, probably even his slides, his slides and the audio, not the video, but he's so funny. And in person, he's like, of course, 10 times funnier than just the audio. Uh, but I want to ask you about this idea about the Dysonian approach uh, to SETI and how is it different from what has been done up to now? Right. And what you're referring to specifically is uh, the paper that we recently had published in the Journal of the British Interplanetary Society. We being my colleagues Milan Sturkovic and the late Robert Bradbury, who regrettably passed away uh, while we were writing this paper. He had a massive stroke. Um, did you ever get a chance either to interview or even meet Robert Bradbury? No. Uh, that's a, that boy. That that was of mine. I'll tell you. He would you would have loved. I think to have him on a show like this. And uh, anyways, um, I, I, in my opinion, he was the world's foremost expert in SETI studies. And with all due respect to Milan, um, I think he uh, his he he was an absolutely voracious uh, collector of any paper and anything to do. Uh, with uh, you know whether it be uh, you know SETI endeavors and the, the whole history of that that uh, action, but even through to the what we're about to get into, which is the whole macro scale uh, mega engineering uh, aspect of things. So what we what we did, we put together a paper that largely had two components to it. One, it was a critique of modern SETI methods and their and their strategies, basically saying that look, guys, um, this is starting to get a bit out of date now in terms of your approach. This was back to uh, you know, some old school thinking back in the 1960s with uh, Frank Drake and that whole uh, generation of thinkers. I mean, as mind uh, expansive as it was and as innovative as it was in terms of this first group, you know, thinking, my God, we could, you know, set up our radio telescopes and listen for radio signals. It is unfortunately a project that has failed to date. And when I usually, when I say that, I get a lot of people scoffing and said, well, you know, of course it's failed today. We've only just started listening. And I think, uh, unfortunately, a comment like that fails to um, recognize uh, the degree to which or the, um, uh, the, the, uh, the rather in this case the uh, improbability of actually getting a signal. We could be listening for the next million years, I, I guarantee you we're not going to get a radio signal. Uh, or I understand it as well, uh, said he's looking for optical signals as well. Um, as, as you're aware, Nicola, 
uh, we as a, as a radio transmitting civilization, we are that's coming to an end. That window is only about a uh, hundred years, hundred and fifty years or so. We are progressively cutting off our, our radio transmissions, so we're about to become quite invisible from a cosmological perspective. Not only so, not, in other words, if we're going to hear another civilization, we're going to have to hear it within that tiny window, which is actually quite absurdly small. But second, uh, the dissipative effects of radio signals over uh, over um, uh, uh, large uh, distances is uh, is non-trivial. And uh, by all accounts, even a, if a radio signal got to us here, it would be so dispersed in terms of its uh, of its uh, signal that we would not actually recognize it as such. So it's a, it's a it's a futile effort all around. Not to mention, I mean, the city claims that they're targeting specific areas that they feel would be prone to or you know that life might 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 be there but for the most part it's a rather uh blind uh and haphazard yeah approach to uh, where they're listening for radio signals so that's the that was the first thing that we said um but not one you know not once to just leave it at that uh we felt that SETI still can be very relevant and they do need to change their model uh quite significantly in terms of how they should be conducting their activities both in terms of how they're listening and even their approach to um what, how they think of themselves and how we think of ourselves as, um, in, as, 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 as a civilization in search of extraterrestrial intelligence. So what we said specifically was is that SETI needs to adopt a more future-centric approach and take a look at the human trajectory. And this is where I came on board of, on the paper, uh, where uh, Robert Bradbury was the computational scientist and Milan was the cosmologist. Uh, I was the, the resident transhumanist on the paper that looked you know, at, the, at what happens to a civilization, to a species, when it becomes quite advanced. And uh, basically, uh, you know, uh, the, the whole, was the whole discussion of, you know, this, of post-biological existence, of being a digital civilization, invoking such things as um, uh, the, what's referred to as the, uh, the intelligence principle, which is the idea that as, as far as a an intelligence can improve itself, it will continue to work to optimize itself to the greatest degree possible. So uh, it's these kinds of realities, if you will, kind of getting a sense as to what the human trajectory is, we can extrapolate based on those trends and say, look, it's very possible, very likely, therefore, that extraterrestrial civilizations, uh, particularly many of those that have come before us, will have gone through these same phases and will kind of result in this kind of a flourishing, this kind of advanced mode. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's basically, in other words, they, they, they shouldn't be looking for civilizations like ours, these kinds of immediate post-industrial civilizations. They need to be looking for post-singularity types uh, or even something we don't even know yet, but that we have to figure what that might be, the, hence the kind of future-centric approach to SETI studies. So um, now what we actually, now from a practical perspective, perspective, okay, what can we actually do? What should we actually be looking for, therefore? And uh, that's why we, we refer to it as, as Dysonian SETI, as we borrow the idea from the, uh, the physicist Freeman Dyson, who uh, was a, 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 a big thinker in terms of uh, you know, these kinds of engineering product, projects that we may get ourselves involved in in future. And the one that he came up with in this paper was only about like one page or so, uh, was a, the, the so-called Dyson sphere, was this idea that we could create a shell uh, around the sun at the distance of one AU, which would largely capture the entire energy output of the sun, which would basically make us into Kardashev. That's uh, uh, a Kardashev two civilization. A Kardashev one is when we're simply able to capture the entire energy output that's uh, uh, required to sustain the planet Earth. So um, I've seen many models as to you know since that paper, uh, you know how we could actually do this, how we could construct it, how the panels would look like. And what's interesting, though, about this, though, is you're not going to get 100% uh, enclosure of the sun's uh, 
uh, of the sun's uh, output. In other words, there's going to be leakage, particularly in the infrared signal. And we know exactly, or at least have an idea in the band as to what that signal would be, and that's what we should be looking for. So when we do look up into the heavens and we aim our telescopes up there, we should be looking for that very specific signature. It wouldn't tell us, um, you know, you know absolutely that that's a Dyson sphere, but it might make us you know rub our chins a little bit and go, geez, what is that? Could that actually be a, you know an alien civilization? And that's one example of many. I mean, we do refer to it as Dysonian simply to give us to give it the sense of that that mega scale aspect. We need to be looking out for the kinds of engineering activities that an advanced extraterrestrial might be engaged in, whether it be stellar uplifting, uh, stellar engines, and um, even waste products, the kind of factorization, if you will, of their activities and uh, figure out what those signatures might look like and basically the challenge here not only in, in not only in, in uh, discovery and identification but to distinguish it from natural phenomenon. I mean as you're aware when we discovered pulsars uh, a few decades ago the first thought was oh my god that that's uh, that's got to be alien that there's no way that something like that could exist in nature but we've since learned that actually yes uh, pulsars are in fact a natural phenomenon. So that's going to be one of our challenges is to basically stop and ask ourselves, okay, what could, you know, what, what's, what's synthetic or artificial and what's natural? And uh, it would be nice as well, this is also what we said in the paper, is that we also should be looking for um, uh, actual signals that are meant to get our attention. Uh, what are called um, uh, calling cards, if you will. So one example, I think, um, uh, by a French cosmologist, he had this uh, idea where an, an ETI could put these uh, have objects rotate around the sun that are very obviously artificial, so like a huge square, a circle, maybe a smiley face, I don't know. <laughs> but it's kind of thing that you look at it and go, yeah, that can't possibly be natural. And that's a very, you know, I, I, I kind of maybe exaggerate, but I, wanna, I did that by design, you know, because there's no way that that could be uh, that they would figure out a way to make it very obvious that they're trying to get our attention, much the same way um, that Carl Sagan had assumed that they would through radio signals. Uh, and in his in his very famous book, now Contact, it was through the transmission of uh, prime numbers that there's nothing in nature that we know of that can reg produce this regularity of prime numbers because it's such a bizarre you know set of you know numbers. So um, that's so that's what we were. That was the paper. And uh, I did send, by the way, the paper to Seth Shostak, and I never heard back from him. So I just uh, uh, thought I'd pass that on. Who knows if they'll adopt this this particular strategy in the future? That that's fantastic, George. Uh, but let me ask you this: uh, I know you're a fan of Carl Sagan's, uh, just like I am. Uh, isn't that, in a way, kind of criticizing and or undermining his work? And he was a very sort of a visionary, very long-term looking kind of guy who was really, in my opinion, he was not just a mere scientist. He was like, a, I would call him both an artist and a philosopher because he was both artistic in the way he was able to communicate his message and inspire us and also very philosophical in the sense that he could dive deeply into the implications of the uh, uh, of all of those uh, dimensions of the cosmos and so on. So, what I'd say is, um, 
I would not be sitting here opposite you if it wasn't for Carl Sagan. It's as simple as that. I mean, probably one of the most formative thinkers on uh, on my in my life, particularly when I was a teenager, and it just set the whole you know path for me in terms of you know scientific inquiry and even thinking uh, from so, you know a cosmological perspective and even an interest in uh, in, in SETI. Uh, absolutely, but I think I, I would disagree with your uh, use of the language and saying that I, you know me and others are working to undermine him or under, undermine his mission. I think um, you know we are scientists and we're coming at this from a scientific perspective, which is um, you know, constantly working to improve our knowledge and under, get a better understanding of systems and, and models. And if anything, I think uh, Sagan, uh, from what I uh, what I know of him, he would probably tr- you know present you know some counter arguments. You know, uh, to, to continue to maybe uphold his particular opinions on it. But ultimately, you know, the more the most efficacious and the uh, the, and, and the, the most valid of arguments will be the ones that survive. That's the scientific method. So, if anything, I think uh, again, I don't, I don't necessarily like the, the choice of language by saying undermining. I say we're engaging in the scientific uh, discourse that Carl Sagan would be 100% behind of, even if it meant contradicting his own ideas. Um, now, similarly, though, I do, uh, as much as I respect Carl Sagan, as much as he continues to be a hero for me, I, I do disagree with some of his um, some of his assumptions, particularly. Uh, him coming from the perspective of the uh, the so-called uh, SETI optimists. SETI optimists, both in terms of uh, his denial of the Fermi paradox, um, and secondly, his uh, his interpretation that uh, that ETIs would be friendly uh, by default. Uh, I think both of those presuppositions are potentially uh, wrong and dangerous, yeah. and that uh, the Fermi paradox is already indicating to us very strongly that there's probably no hope in hell that we will ever have. A, of, uh, of uh, detecting the signs of extraterrestrial intelligence. Um, if we are going to find signs of ETIs, they will be of the, the non-colonizing type, which is why I think our paper on Dysonian studies still remains valid. Um, but we won't, but the, the, the galaxy is old enough, it's ancient enough, and life could have emerged so long ago that it could have been colonized by now thousands of times over. And uh, a common objection to this, to this particular stance is that, well, yeah, they could have Absolutely, you're right, George. You know, colonization may not be what you think. They could have just come and gone, and we'd never see their signs ever again. But uh, I disagree completely with that because I do believe it violates the uh, intelligence principle, which is that if, a, if an intelligence does start a colonization wave, it will irrevocably alter uh, the fabric of the galaxy itself, and it will begin to convert it into a Kardashev three-scale galaxy. And uh, that's the clearly not happened. Uh, uh, our galaxy is clearly still very much in a, in a natural state, unperturbed state. Uh, and uh, I think that uh, it's, been, it's been clear that no colonization wave has made its way through the, the Milky Way galaxy at this point, and, and perhaps maybe through none of the galaxies in the universe, which is a rather bizarre conclusion to make, and uh, hopefully you know, we'll have some insight into, into that at some point. But uh, and then similarly, we, we uh, the other con- the other argument or uh, problem with Sagan was his uh, contact optimism in terms of the be- uh, the uh, you know, the benevolence of ETIs, and this is where, for example, a thinker like David Brin would agree with me that we need to be very wary of shouting out in the cosmos, so to speak, which is another which is another which is another sign of SETI. Why, by the way, another reason why uh, Dysonian SETI and SETI proper are good is because it's it's somewhat it's passive, is that we're just listening and looking. And that we're not making our presence known, but there is a group of, uh, um, I guess, SETI advocates or whatever what you would call them, known as active SETI, that they've actually already started transmitting uh, signals out into the cosmos that are meant to get the attention of ETIs. And uh, uh, David Brin is one of the more vocal opponents of this. 
You know, he's not making any grand claim. He's not claiming aliens are good or bad. He's saying, hold off on this because we have no idea if uh, we could, uh, you know, get some undue, uh, you know, attention. Uh, like he said, shouting out in the jungle, so to speak, as it could bring in some pretty terrible lions and tigers and bears that we're not uh, ready to deal with right now. So, but thankfully, that's not, uh, well... I shouldn't say thankfully, because there actually are active attempts to do this, particularly by some Russian groups. And uh, I think Bryn and myself, we've, we've talked together about setting up even something like a treaty or something to get global cooperation on the matter. We think it's that serious. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so that's yeah, uh, that's my little thing about Sagan. Uh, I think it's a fair question. But uh, yeah, it's uh, all part of moving forward and, and you know, adopting new ideas and new techniques to get better answers. So, George, uh, for all those uh, viewers and listeners uh, today who don't know much about you and would like to find out more about what you do and your work, what's the best place to go and visit you? Uh, there's a couple places. Um, one is my blog, obviously, and it's called Sentient Developments. And uh, I'm a very regular blogger there. I tend to write original articles and uh, also post from uh, some of the my favorite uh, you know, sites around the web, and your audience would definitely be interested in it. it, it I talk about singularity issues, artificial intelligence, and uh, futurism, and, uh, and all, that, all that good stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, also, just very quickly, uh, even Twitter, that, that's a good way to get, get a hold of me, and that's just at Dvorsky. Um, but um, I've also uh, restarted my podcast as well. It's the Sentient Developments Podcast. I did it for a number of years, uh, like three or four years ago, but then I stopped for several years. And uh, a couple months ago, I restarted it again. And uh, uh, the format's not like yours. Yours is interview, uh, interview style. Mine is just uh, myself, just uh, going over some um, some uh, some articles that I've that I've read, or just my rants about something that's interesting me at, at any given time. But definitely, it's still in line with uh, your particular community. So I think uh, your audience would, would find some value in, in that. Yeah, and, and, I, and I have to share. I am a fan because I I am very happy that you started your restarted your podcast, and because I had happened to fall onto a few of the older episodes, but I've also definitely been keeping up with the newer ones. Oh, nice, nice. Uh, that's glad. I'm glad to hear that. And uh, your your audience can uh, find the new podcast by simply just going to Sentient Developments. I post links to it very regularly, and there's links in, including on how to how to sign up for the RSS or iTunes or what have you. Fantastic. Let me ask you the final question here, which is: if you were to sort of wrap up and perhaps I don't know if you want to try and uh, bring together all the topics that we've discussed today. I mean, we started with the paleo diet, we went through animal rights and animal enhancement and transhumanism, and we sort of finished with SETI and, and your suggestion for a Dysonian approach to it. Um, so do you want to wrap these up uh, or, or do you want to... Yes, I can wrap it up with a, a line from Highline who says, specialization is for insects. Uh, and I told you I'd get that line in there, but uh, but no, I mean you know what? I, I can't. I, I say that uh, somewhat uh, tongue in cheek because uh, I mean um, I, I just think think about all the things we talked about today, and even the things that are part of my life and part of my you know my intellectual pursuits, and it's so all over the map. I think if anything, my struggle is is to kind of combine it and synthesize it into some, some kind of cohesive whole. But for me, like I said, like Highline said, specialization is kind of maybe not, not the way to go. That it's I think it's through the diversity of interests. And you know, multiplicity of uh, your activities and uh, ability to talk about you know virtually anything you know at least somewhat intelligently. I think that's the joy of life, and that's what that I thrive off that. But I mean, I'm sure you know, Nicola. Whenever you interview a transhumanist or any futurist, you find that you get polymaths on the show, and I think that's what makes us pretty amazing as a community. Is we're all able to 
you touch on so many subjects and maybe that's why we were so good at seeing the big picture and maybe why that's so difficult for some of the segments of society to not look at the future in the same way that we do is I think it's this uh, ability to, to take uh, you know so much of life so much of math and science and philosophy and politics and everything and human well-being and even some spiritual uh, some spiritual notions at the same time and uh, maybe develop a big picture of what the future could be and where we could end up as a civilization and I think it's through uh, the, that, that polymath, uh, diverse attitude, that, that's, what's, that's what enables us to think and do the things that we do. That's totally brilliant, George. I, I'm really enjoying that thought, and, and I'll take it away from this conversation okay. and use it myself and remember it because I really love it. <laughs> so thank you for that, and I think it would make You're a great welcome. title too. <laughs> okay. okay. So thank you for being with us on the show, George. My pleasure. Let's do it again, all right? Absolutely. Thank you.